You're now listening to the Live Different Podcast with Matt Wilson. What's up, Live Different Podcast listeners? It's Matt coming to you with another amazing episode. Today, we have Gretchen Rubin, the author of The Happiness Project. She is a New York Times bestselling author. She's coming out with a new book. You are going to get to hear all about it in a second. But first, I wanted to tell you, if you are looking for travel deals, you should go to under30experiences.com and check out our new Trips on Sale page. This week, we have a bunch of Europe trips going on sale for this summer. It is in enough time for you to make some plans. Don't let your summer suck. Make sure you do something awesome. Get a little bit out of your comfort zone. Meet some new people. Do the things that we talk about on the Live Different podcast, please. And I wanted to extend another thank you to everyone who has reviewed the podcast or just left a rating. You don't even have to write anything anymore. If you are on iTunes right now, just scroll down to the end of the episodes list and you can leave a rating. Leave five stars. I would be forever grateful to you. And uh, hit me on Instagram if you have any feedback. What kind of guests are you looking for? What are you looking to hear more of? What can I do to improve? I want to improve as a host. I want to improve this community. So please let me know at Matt Wilson TV. I love reading through these messages and get ready for an awesome show. Thanks, guys. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm your host, Matt Wilson, and today I'm honored to be here with none other than Gretchen Rubin, a four-time New York Times bestselling author, including her most recent 10th anniversary edition of The Happiness Project and soon-to-be-released Outer Order, Inner Calm, Declutter and organize to make more room for happiness. She is the host of the award-winning podcast with her sister called Happier. And uh, Gretchen, I believe that you came our way through the network at the World Domination Summit with Chris Gilbu, although I'm never sure how we're able to land such amazing guests. So welcome. Thank you very much for being on. Oh, I'm so happy to be talking to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, As I said, it's Great to be with you. I'll let the listeners know who haven't read your 10th anniversary edition of Happier. The book has been, I would say, a smashing success. You've been interviewed by Oprah. You've had the opportunity uh, to meet the Dalai Lama and uh, done some pretty interesting things over the the last 10 years uh, and also the last two years. So yeah, again, uh, thank you very much. Oh, yeah. My pleasure. Well, uh, I wanted to really just start out in case people aren't familiar with The Happiness Project. And this was the title of your blog, which now you refer to as your site. But if people don't know about The Happiness Project, could you just give them the 35,000 foot view for us? Well, um, I got the idea to do the Happiness Project in a very inconspicuous moment. I was stuck on a crowded city bus in the pouring rain, and I thought, what do I want from life? I thought, well, I want to be happy. And I realized I didn't spend any time thinking about whether I was happy, if I could be happy, or can you make yourself happier? And I often get sort of obsessed with ideas. Like This hit me so hard, and I I ran out to the library the next day, got a giant stack of books about happiness and started reading. And it was just, 
interested for myself. I thought I should have a happiness project. And that was the phrase I used in my own mind. And I was just doing all this research for myself, but the information and everything I was reading and thinking about was so fascinating and so limitless. I finally thought, gosh, this should be my next book. And so that book is the happiness project. And what I did is I took a year because I think a year seems long enough that you can make real change, but short enough that it doesn't seem interminable. And I thought of 12 areas in my life where I wanted, I thought I could be happier. Uh, everything from energy to friendship, to work, to passion, to eternity. And each month I would devote to that theme, like energy. And then I would take a handful of concrete manageable resolutions in that area where I thought, well, this is probably something that would make me happier. Like, yeah, I think if I did a better job of getting more sleep, I would probably have more energy and I would probably, that would probably boost my happiness. So I did that for a year and the book, The Happiness Project is the account of that year. Um, So I talk about why I chose the things I, I chose based on ancient philosophy, cutting edge science, pop culture, what my friends did and, you know, what I observed in the world, what I tried, what I learned, what worked for me. And ever since then, actually, sort of happiness in human nature has been my subject ever since with habits and outer order and personality types. Uh, It was just, it's a fascinating, fascinating subject. Excellent. Well, you picked so many interesting things to get yourself Well, I was going to say on the right track, but let's back up a second. And uh, already we should note that you already seemed like a pretty happy person. I think you might have even said you took a test and you scored something like a 3.8 out of 5. Or Mm -hmm. uh, by all accounts, you know, you mentioned in your book that you were happy, you have a beautiful family, uh, a loving husband, career, etc. And so this wasn't like you were pulling yourself up by the bootstraps here out of a ditch somewhere to make yourself happy. But you kind of looked around, as you said, and and you thought, wait a second, I should be happier. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because when I was writing the book, some people were very skeptical of whether anybody would be interested in like whether a pretty happy person could become happier. You know, they were like, there's no arc. Why is this interesting if, if you're not coming from a place of deep pain? But I was like, well, that's what I am. I mean, you know, I am who I am and I I can't fake it. I'm not going to pretend to be somebody I'm not. And what I found when the book came out is that's true for a lot of people. And in fact, research shows most people are pretty happy or very happy. Most people are pretty happy. And yet I think a lot of people felt the way I did, which is, yeah, I'm pretty happy. Yeah, I have all the, the basic elements of a happy life. And yet when I think about it, I do see places where I could be happier. I could have more energy. I could have deeper, more meaningful friendships. I could be getting more out of work. I could be behaving myself better. You know, a lot of it is living up to your ideals for yourself, being the kind of person that you want to be. And I think for a lot of us, what I certainly found is that there's low hanging fruit. There's things that we can do without taking a lot of time, energy, or money that really can boost our happiness. And so I think the idea that it's not worth thinking about if you're not deeply unhappy it's like, why wouldn't everyone want to be as happy as they can be given their nature and their circumstances? And it's interesting because in the book I talk, I say like, this is for ordinary happiness and unhappiness. I'm not talking about people who have depression, which I think, I think is a third category. And I'm not coming from a place of like deep unhappiness. 
But a lot of people then when the book came out said, well, the kind of things that work for you also work for me, even though I am going through a very, very deeply unhappy time or I am depressed. A lot of these things work for me too, even though I don't say that I'm specifically addressing them. Turns out a lot of the things work for just about everyone. Sure. It seems to make sense. I mean, if if someone was deeply depressed and they identify things like giving themselves more energy by going to sleep earlier and starting a blog or a passion project and becoming more creative and, and doing things like this, that would seem to, would most likely raise their their baseline of happiness. I mean, one is the energy is a biological thing and the the passion is is something else. I mean, I think it would certainly, uh, it couldn't hurt, right? Well, sure. But the problem with a very severe depression is that you can't do it. You're already sleeping too much. That's like a whole separate area of expertise that I don't pretend to do. But I don't, I don't think you can say to someone who's deeply depressed, well, if you just go outside and exercise every day, you'd feel better. Research shows you would feel better if you did that. But the problem is a lot of times people just, that's exactly what the problem is, is they're not able to do that. So, so you have to figure that out first. But a lot of people are, you know, mildly depressed or they're just going through a blue time, you know, or that just it's things are tough. So there's a lot of room, you know, and you can do what you can do. Yeah, of course. So, But how about this kind of general average person just going through the motions, not incredibly fulfilled or think that they could be happier? One thing that you said could be a cause is that they're not living up to their full expectations of themselves or their full capabilities. I forget exactly how you just put it. Uh, but what else do you see as the reason that that people just could be happier? Well, I think that's a really, really important question. And I think for a lot of people, and this is certainly exactly describes me, this is why I did it, is I just never thought about it. You know, I'm like, was managing my to-do list. I was busy. I was thinking about a million things. And I just never took the time to step back and look at the big picture and think, well, really, what would make me happier? What is a happier life? What would that look like? And so I think a lot of it is that we just, we're so preoccupied with other things. We're managing daily life. Um, that we don't take a step back. And um, this is why I'm a big fan of New Year's resolutions or, you know, some people don't like to do New Year's resolutions, but at your birthday or whatever a milestone might be, like anything that's a catalyst for self-reflection, anything that makes you step back and think, what could I do that would make me happier? Um, and it's funny because a lot of times people say to me, well, don't you think that people are so worried about being happy that it becomes a source of unhappiness itself? Like people are like driven down by the worry that they're not happy. And I'm like, I don't see that. That's like a made up problem in my experience. I don't feel that most people are over preoccupied with being happy. I feel like more people really just forget to think about it at all. So I do think that just a little bit of reflection and a little bit of looking out for what the opportunities are for building better relationships or creating more outer order or you know, mastering an important habit, things like that. I really do think they can make people really boost people's happiness in a meaningful way. Okay. So, so this is interesting. Uh, and what you said is kind of alludes to where you get into the book uh, about mindfulness or so many people suggested the Dalai Lama's The Art of Happiness, I believe the book is called. And mm -hmm. you were interested in Buddhism, but you kind of took the Buddhist approach like, 
oh, don't become attached to things or the outcome of a project that maybe you should consider, you know, Buddhism teaches that maybe you should detach from things and not want so much. But what you're getting at here again is kind of your uh, kind of your non-Buddhist uh, point of view. So could you go into that a, a little bit on how you're really looking for deeper experiences in life and to have more in, in many ways? Is that correct? Yes. And I mean, I think different philosophies and different approaches appeal to different people and resonate with different people. So I wouldn't say like one way is right and one way is wrong. But definitely my own approach is to deepen attachment and to try to create and to really have more, raise the stakes. That's where I feel like happiness comes. And I I feel like the more I deepen those connections, the more I care, the more almost that I open myself up for pain and disappointment, the happier I get. For many people, the Buddhist approach is, you know, very, very meaningful. It doesn't resonate with me so much. Okay, so, but before this book, you were already a a seemingly high achiever. I mean, you went to Yale and you had other New York Times bestseller. I'm sorry, was the Happiness Project the first New York Times bestseller or you had written other books before? Is that correct? Yes, I had written three other books, one of which was a Washington Post bestseller for one week. Okay. But so that was the closest I had come to. But certainly for many people, they thought The Happiness Project was my first book. So I was I was a person who was an overnight sensation after working steadily for 10 years. <laughs> of course. But you were my I guess my point here is that you were not somebody who was unsuccessful by any means or not doing anything with their life. I, I just want to point that no. out again. Uh, but even being maybe a, even a type A personality, I'm not sure if that if you describe yourself as such, but even going a step further and checking more things off your list and setting more goals for yourself and creating new challenges, that even made you happier. Is that correct? Yes. And it's funny that you point that out because one of the things that mystified me after the Happiness Project came out was so many people would come up to me and they'd say, well, all those things that you you wanted to do, all those kind of resolutions that you set for yourself, how did you get yourself to do them? And I said, well, I, I picked things that I thought would make me happier. And and then I decided to do them. And, and then if they didn't make me happier, I stopped. And if they did make me happier, I just kept doing it. And they would look at me very puzzled and they would say, but how did you get yourself to do them? Right. I was like, what is going on here? Like, I was really flabbergasted by this because to me, that question didn't really make sense. But over and over and over, people asked it. And so I thought, you know, I can't ignore this. I have to try to understand how are people approaching the world and their own aims for themselves in a different way for me. And it's funny. So it was later, a couple books later, I was writing a book about habit change, my book Better Than Before, which is about the 21 strategies of how people make and break habits. And I stumbled across this sort of this pattern in human nature, which I call the four tendencies, which divides people into four categories, upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. And there was just one chapter in that book, but everybody was like, I need to know more about the four tendencies. So then that was my next book, which is all about the four tendencies. And what I found is that I'm an, an upholder. That's my category of the four. I didn't know that when I wrote The Happiness Project. It turns out upholder is a small category. Not that many people are upholders. And one of the things that is very noticeable about upholders is they're very good at setting and making resolutions. That's kind of a, a strong skill of upholders. 
If they decide to do something, they're very good at following through. And if you look back, I'm like, oh, now I see why this is the happiness project is exactly the kind of thing that I would be attracted to and that I would be able to do because I am an upholder. Um, and if people are interested in knowing their category, there's a free quick quiz on my site. If you go to quiz.gretchenrubin.com or just go to my site, gretchenrubin.com and look for it. It's a really quick quiz and people can find out what they are. But not many people are upholders like me. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. And and I would like to get into to how people can make all these things stick, of course, uh, as habits in a second. But yes. I have to ask if type A people like myself who already have too much going on would write you and say, oh my God, lady, I just couldn't do all those things, cram in all of those additional things into my day because- Personally, I find that, I mean, yes, I've already get up early and and go to sleep early and have a blog and a podcast and I need a not to-do list rather than a to-do list every day. Uh, So do you have a lot of people who will write you and say, oh my God, I'm just totally overwhelmed thinking I could do. I I even find it the source of a lot of my unhappiness is just having too many balls juggling in the air. Mm. Almost everything I picked are, are things that really don't take any time or take much time or energy. So, so for instance, one thing I think I, I can't remember if this is in the Happiness Project or Happier at Home, which is a book that I wrote next. I think it was in Happier at Home, which was all about being happier at home. Like one thing that we did that had a huge transformation in our lives was we all, most of my resolutions are just things that I could do individually. But there was one where my whole family agreed, which was to give warm greetings and farewell. So every time somebody comes or goes from our apartment, people like pay attention. They don't just like grunt out a hello or yell from the other end of the apartment. They really come to you and like give you a kiss, give you a hug, acknowledge that you're coming or going. We didn't have a dog then. Now we have a dog. And I'm like, I want to be at least as enthusiastic (laughs) as my dog, you know, to see somebody in my family. Does it take a lot of time and energy to like get up and say somebody like, oh, how was your day? It does not take a lot of time or energy. This is not something that is going to like blow your schedule. And yet it makes a very big difference to the atmosphere of your household and to your sense of tenderness and affection and connection. So I really look for things where it's not like, okay, you're going to do a two-hour silent meditation every morning where it's like, okay, your whole life kind of has to be reoriented around that. This is the little things. One thing that I talk about that so many people say really help them is the one-minute rule, which is literally if something takes less than a minute, you do it without delay. So if you can rip open a letter, scan it, and throw it away, if you can hang up your coat on a hook, if you can print out a document and file it, if you can put the cap back on the toothpaste and put the toothpaste back in the medicine cabinet and shut the door. These things are one minute. So they are perfectly fit into the, you're just the flow of your day. And yet over and over people are like, oh my gosh, this like dramatically changed my day. Cause just all that scum of minor tasks and just like a no- visual annoyance just vanishes. And yet you don't have to take an afternoon to do it. So I think you're right. I think a lot of people do resist thinking about change because they're like, I can't add anything more because I'm barely hanging on by my fingernails now. But I think there's a lot of things that we can do that don't significantly add to the burden. But also to your point, I would say, have a resolution that's like, take time to goof off. Put it on the calendar, just like, sure. a, like a dentist appointment. Say, I'm going to spend two hours on Saturday reading on the reading in bed and put that on the calendar. And that's something to do just like anything else. So you need to make time for things that are, uh, I mean, just because something's not productive doesn't mean that it's not a good use of your time. 
So I think make that a resolution as well. Have more fun. And I love the two little examples of the the warm greetings. Uh, that was a big thing growing up in in my household. I mean, that just when I go to somebody's house and somebody can't get off the couch to, to greet me, I'm like, uh, should I have come over in the first place? I mean, that's yeah, that that kills me. And God, it's amazing what. Uh, just something so tiny, like putting the 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 yes. cap back on the toothpaste. What a difference that can make in your life! And uh, I, I love the one minute rule. We've had David Allen on the podcast, and I know that when during your research, you mentioned that you uh, had read Getting Things Done, or or you mentioned I think uh, you mentioned David Allen, and he has the I think is a two minute rule, and uh, anything that. Don't write it down and say, "Oh, I got to do this." If it takes less than two minutes, it'll don't have that in your in your mind. Forget that clutter and and just do it. So that's amazing. And of course, we can get into to clutter as well. Yeah. But I do want to ask you how these things become habits. What's your best strategy? I know you have an entire book on this. And I want to make sure that people go out and read it and that <laughs> I don't just ask you all the questions they could find in your book. So please, if you don't mind. Well, yeah. So people are often like, okay, how do I change a habit? You know? Um, and the fact is there's no magic one size fits all solution. There is no one best way. There's no best practice. There's no one page you can download that tells you the secret. There's no seven tips that are going to guarantee your success. What I found is that there are 21 strategies that people use to make or break habits. And sometimes people are like, 21's too many, I can't handle it, give me the big three. But it's good that there are 21 because some work very well for some people and don't work at all for other people. And some are available to us at some times during our lives, but not at all times of our lives. So I think it's very helpful for people to kind of know every strategy that they might use. And as they look at them, they're like, this one works really well for me. I've had, you know, thinking back, I've had success with this. When I think about when things have gone well for me, this was a strategy that I used or this appeals to me. I could imagine myself working this into my life. And then some you're like, no, that doesn't work with me. That makes me crazy. I don't like that. And so it's good to know all of them. Now, some work pretty much for everybody. Like one of the most universally useful, there's twin strategies. Um, they're the opposite of each other. The strategy of convenience and the strategy of inconvenience. To kind of a crazy, hilarious degree, and I have some of the funny research about this in the book. If something's even slightly more convenient, we're far more likely to do it. And if it's slightly less convenient, it's a big turnoff. And so if there's something you don't want to get yourself to do, make it inconvenient. And if there's something you want yourself to do, make it as convenient as possible. I heard from many people who not only lay out their gym clothes the night before they go to bed to make it easy to go work out, they literally sleep in their gym clothes. So they don't even have to change their clothes. They're like, okay, there you go, right? It's like, what could be easier? Sleeping in your gym clothes. But I think a lot of times when people are frustrated, when they feel like I have no willpower, why can everybody do this and I can't? It's because they're setting up a habit in a way that's just not right for them. And if they would try it in a different way, there's a lot of ways to achieve a habit. Try it in a different way. You might have dramatically easier time of it. Just to take a very obvious, familiar example, morning people and night people. Research shows they really are morning people and night people. It's largely a function of genetics and also age. But often what the kind of expert advice is, if you want to exercise, you should do it first thing in the morning. And there's a million reasons why that's a good idea. 
If you want to work on your novel, there's a million reasons why it's a good idea to get up early and just like do an hour a day before you start your day working on your novel. This is good advice if you are a morning person. I'm a morning person. That advice works for me, but it doesn't work for night people because night people are at their most creative and energetic and productive much later in the day. They probably are struggling to get out of bed, even to do the basics of their life, get their kids to school, get to work on time because the world is set up for morning people. And night people are at a real disadvantage because they don't want to start getting going that early. And the idea that they're going to get up even earlier to do some demanding task is setting them up for failure. Not because they have no willpower, not because they don't have any self-control, but because they're night people. So the question is not, how do I become a morning person? The question is, how do I exercise later in the day in a way that works for me that's better? Once that's the question, many, many possibilities open up. But if you're just like, I need to change, it's like, well, maybe if you wait 15 years, you'll be more of a morning person because you'll just be older. That works for a lot of people. But if you want to exercise now and not wait, well, maybe try it later in the day. There's a lot of good reasons to exercise in the morning. But if you can't exercise in the morning or you don't exercise in the morning, it doesn't matter. You got to do what works for you. Sure. I, and I think that at the end there, you nailed the nailed it on the head because, you know, for me, I don't much like working out in the morning, getting really getting going, I, I would much rather have a cup of coffee and write. And that works for me. And I know that I'm pretty much useless yeah. come 4.30 p.m. And I've even seen a uh, neuroscientist who has looked at my brain and said, yeah, this, there's some reasons that that could actually be the case. And, and if anybody is interested in researching more about if they're a morning person or not, they can Google I believe it's called sleep chronotype and we can link some of this up uh, in our show mm. notes. But yeah, there's, there's tons of research out there. Yeah. There's also a fascinating book called Internal Time. It's pretty scholarly, but fascinating um, about chronotypes. And if you're a night person who feels bad about it, or people are always like trying to make you feel bad about being a night person, it will give you much fodder <laughs> for, or, for arguing about why you just, you're hardwired the way you are. Yeah, I think there's a lot of focus now these days on chronotypes, uh, circadian rhythm, how sunlight affects the body. We need to pay attention to the body. Uh, that was a big thing that I learned from the Happiness Project is a lot of times people get really up in their heads and they don't realize that their their physical experience is always gonna color their emotional experience and the body always wins. Think about your body. And you can get a long way just by getting a lot of the basics of related to your body under control. I'm glad that you brought that up because you said in your book, I'm going back through my notes right now, and you talked about acting the way you want to feel. Yeah, this is a really interesting psychological phenomenon, very well uh, established. And it, it's a little bit counterintuitive, I think, because a lot of times we assume that we act because of the way we feel. So I think, well, I'm yelling and slamming doors because I'm really angry. But actually what they found is that it's the opposite, that the brain is looking around and thinking, wow, there's a lot of yelling and slamming doors happening around here. I guess there's a lot of anger. And that gives you the angry feeling. And so you, we can take advantage of this because it's very hard, I, I don't know about you, but at least for me, and I think for most people, it's very hard to directly change an emotional state. It's very hard to just say, now I'm going to make myself feel friendly. Now I'm going to make myself feel calm, you know, because it's like, what? I can't do that. But what we can do is we can change our outer behavior. We can influence much more easily just our, our actions. 
So if you act the way you wish you felt, you will give yourself those feelings. If you act friendly, you will start to feel more friendly. If you act grateful, you will start to feel more feelings of gratitude. If you act high energy, if you walk more quickly, if you speak more quickly and with more volume, if you just act more energetic, you will start to feel like you have more energy. And so this is a way to indirectly, but very significantly influence an emotional state, especially one that you don't like. You don't want to feel angry. You don't want to feel anxious. You don't want to feel unfriendly or reserved. So this is a great way to take action. And it seems if you're expressing anger, and I don't have my head totally wrapped around this, but it's probably not that, oh, I was so angry that I slammed the door. No, it's probably that you really wanted to be angry in that moment and you wanted to show that you were angry. You wanted to feel what it was like to, "Ah, I wish I could just punch this wall or what I'm thinking of LeBron James after the the NBA finals, he broke his hand and he said, yeah, it was self-inflicted. Yeah, great example. Yeah, he he probably wanted to feel that or show off for his teammates or make a point. So that's really interesting. And just when you try your very hardest to give just the most, I guess, insignificant smile, you know, when you really try to give the clerk, right, a smile because you should be in the habit or when you get up off the couch, like you said, to go say bye to somebody, that actually is changing your state. When you could have sat sat on the couch and be like, all right, see you later. But no, if you walk someone out to the to the door and you put a smile on and you say, okay, have a good day. You really are changing totally the way that you feel by taking those actions. Well, and you raise an excellent point too, which is that you don't act in a vacuum. Other people are responding to you. And so you're going to change the atmosphere in which you live. Because if you're smiling at a clerk, they're going to be more likely to smile back. If you say, If somebody has something that could escalate a tense situation and you find a way to kind of joke about it and diffuse it, well, your whole uh, life, like the, the life that you live will be changing with you because people will be responding to you more differently. And so there's something called emotional contagion. We literally infect each other with our moods. If I act more high energy, you will feel more energetic because my energy will influence you. If I act friendly, you're going to feel more friendly to me. And so, and then I'm going to feel like, oh, you like me. So I think you're exactly right. This is beyond even just what we're doing, but that we're, we're changing the exchange of emotion that we are living in. So it's really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And then hopefully it becomes habit. I'm thinking about today as I made a concerted effort. I was very annoyed calling my bank uh, about something. And, you know, nobody wants to be on hold and nobody wants to answer the 15th question and be transferred to the fourth person, et cetera. But I really tried my hardest to be as mindful as possible and be nice to the person because. A, uh, not to sound manipulative, but that's only going to help your case. But B, I know that it's going to make that poor person on the other end of the line, that's going to make their day just a little bit better in the planet, just a little bit nicer place. And C, it's going to start to hopefully be a habit of, of mine. And when I hung off the phone, I thought, okay, yeah, I was a little bit nicer. Now I'm in a better mood than uh, going into that feeling all all pissy. So I'm really happy that you mentioned that, Gretchen. Yeah. No, because we've all had that thing where you get very agitated by your own anger. Whereas if you can keep more self-mastery, you're not as 
unnerved by it. Um, I think it's right. It takes it takes a lot of effort sometimes to use a calm voice and not to be angry. <laughs> I have a thing about going through security at airports. It just gets me every time. And I have to, as I go, I've got clear, I've got TSA pre-check. I've tried to make it as easy as possible. And I'm always like, this is their job. It doesn't matter if I think this is a good idea or the best way to set this up, or this could be done in a more efficient way. This is the situation. I'm just going to stay calm. I give myself plenty of time. I'm not rushing, but I have to every time, like you did with your bank conversation, remind myself, behave yourself. In the end, you'll walk away feeling better than if you get yourself all worked up over a situation that basically is only going to get worse the more you give into those those negative feelings. Yeah, and I always think about the you know all the research that you read on neuroplasticity these days where you are training yourself. If you're getting pissed off about something, you're only training yourself to get pissed off the next time and making those neural pathways just be ingrained with that type of behavior. And that's not how I want to live my life. Yeah, I mean, we've all experienced people like that in the workplace or in our families, um, if not in ourselves, where just the person is constantly, constantly annoyed constantly irritated, constantly angry. It's like, doesn't matter what happens. It's like going to 11 every time and it's just exhausting. And in the end, you you end up wanting to avoid that person. And I don't think any of us want to be that way, live that way or or have that reputation among the people who know us. No, I, absolutely not. Christian, I, I wanted to ask you, I was just listening to a podcast of yours with your sister about your book goals. And I wanted, I know you did a ton of reading when you were creating your own happiness project. So if people want to be happier in general, what books would you suggest that they read other than your own, of course, which I will recommend? Well, you know, it's hard because there's so many wonderful books. I mean, I kind of feel like I need to mention the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin because this is this is like, <laughs> you know, the OG for personal development. And like no one was more, more prolific, more productive, funnier, better writer, inventing bifocals, discovering electricity, helping to found the United States. And I just love the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. But it is a founding father and he writes in a very founding father kind of way. So it's not for everyone. If you're interested in time, which we just talked about, I do think Internal Time is a great book for that. One of the um, resolutions that I I really love doing the most was to imitate a spiritual master, which is a really creative exercise in self-reflection where you have to choose your spiritual master and then learn about your spiritual master. So you would think, well, how could I imitate my spiritual master in my own life? Because probably your spiritual master has a very different life from your life. Though some people have told me that their spiritual masters are people they actually know, which mm. is which is extraordinary. My spiritual master is St. Therese of Lisieux, even though I'm not Catholic. But she wrote a book called Story of a Soul. It's a memoir, which, again, I feel that I must recommend it because it has been so transformative for me. But I have to say it's probably not a book that everyone would love. But if it is the kind of book for you, I mean, at least look at it. Because I feel like it's a book that I think about all the time and return to all the time. She was a doctor of the church, so she wasn't just a saint. She was a super saint. And she also has a really good sense of humor, which you don't think that a saint is going to be funny. Right. So that's one. Gosh, there's just so many books. It's hard to even know where to start. 
That's okay. You've given a couple of good recommendations. And if people read your book, they will see a bunch of the titles that you list off in there. So yes. I always have a lot of sele- uh, selected reading. I don't, I don't include every book, but only the books that I feel like I really got a lot out of. So if you look at those lists, th- those are very good lists, yeah, for each category. Okay, great. And side question, Gretchen, have you given meditation another shot or, or a shot at all? Because I know you were, you were not interested at the time. I tried it and it did not do anything for me, so I quit. And then years later, I don't know if you've talked to Dan Harris, who wrote a book called 10% Happier. So Dan is a friend of mine and he was just gave me such a good, you know, just was so compelling about why meditation had been so great for him. Sure. I was like, okay, I'm going to try it again. And so I tried it again as part of my better than before, because it was a habit. I was like, okay, let me try the habit of meditation and see if it works for me. And what's very unusual is I had no trouble forming the habit of meditation. Um, So I didn't have any trouble doing it once I decided I wanted to do it. Again, that's being an upholder, but it just really did nothing for me. I really, I was like, I did it for five months and I'm like, this is not something that's, that's helpful for me. Now, I know that many, many, many people find it enormously helpful. My college roommate meditates, I think for three hours every day. Wow. So I know many people who swear by it, but I got to say that for me. So again, I, I sort of feel like there are no magic one size fits all solutions. Try something. If it works for you, that's great. If it doesn't work for you, don't beat yourself up. Just try to achieve an aim in a different way. Well, well said. Okay, so now you are taking a deep dive in your new book, not out at the time of this recording, but Outer Order, Inner Calm. Yes. And this is a lot about uh, decluttering and organizing. And so, well, because it's not out yet, I haven't had a chance to read it, but could you tell us a little bit more about what people might be able to learn? Yeah, well, ever since I started writing about happiness, I've been struck by the disproportionate boost that most people, not everybody, I'm not saying everybody, but most people seem to get from just creating outer order in their environment, like way disproportionate to the kind of actual importance in our lives. So something like a crowded coat closet or an overflowing in basket or a messy car, we would all say, this is trivial. In the context of a happy life, what difference does it make if it's you got a lot of coats jammed into your coat closet? It's not a big deal. And yet over and over, people would say to me, When I get control over the stuff of my life, I feel more in control of my life generally. I'm both more energized and calmer. I feel like I can tackle bigger projects. I feel more optimism. I feel more sense of purpose. I feel more clarity. Um, Somebody said to me, I finally cleaned out my fridge and now I know I can switch careers. And I know exactly how that felt. And so I'd always been intrigued by this phenomenon because it just did seem like people were getting more happiness out of clearing clutter than you would really think would make sense. So I decided to write this. It's a little book. It's a little fun, quick book, which is just looking at why is it that outer order gives us this inner calm? And then also just has tons of ideas if you're trying to create more outer order in your life, just like little ideas. Because I think a lot of people, they want it, but the thing is, okay, what do you do? How do you do it? And then how, and then the second thing is having created it, how do you maintain it? Because we've all had the thing where, you know, I spent the day cleaning out my closet and then two weeks later, it looks just as bad as ever. So how do you create this outer order and then how do you maintain outer order 
And again, it's it's supposed to be kind of like a psych up book. Yeah, I don't know about you, but do you ever read books because you like want to make a change or you want to work on something in your life and you read a book that's like going to get you all psyched up and give you lots of ideas and get you sort of cheerlead you into sure. doing it? So this is kind of like the psych up book. So my, my hope is that people will kind of read half of it and then they'll spring to their feet and think, I have to tackle the medicine cabinet right this second because I'm so fired up and with a lot of ideas about how you can do it. And again, realistically, you know, this is not, okay, take a personal day off of work and devote it. Unless that's what you like. Some people like to do it that way. It's not the only way to do it. So I try to recognize like a lot of, a lot of the differences in how people most effectively tackle this kind of challenge. Okay, great. Well, well I'll, I'll share with you that uh, one thing that I notice about myself is that mm. when I have a nice clean workspace, well, I seem to be a lot more productive, even to the point where I have said, I'll look at my bedroom and I'll think, oh, messy bedroom, messy mind. Or yeah. I started to notice in college I would notice two things. One, I would notice my own habits during the week when I was super attentive to my coursework. I would keep my room all neat and clean. Everything was organized. And then on the weekends, when it was a horror show, when I was drunk the whole time, mm-hmm. everything was, I mean, chairs were flipped over and piles of clothes on and beer bottles. You know, it was just yeah. a, a mess. Uh, and I would notice that, of course, my roommates, my classmates, whomever. And I'd say, okay, yeah, I wonder how this person can, can find anything in his room or her room. No wonder they're, they're struggling in, in places X, Y, and Z in their life. So did you, have you seen uh, a lot of that in maybe research or you're just your own observations? No, absolutely. And I think for a lot of people, you treat yourself to a mess. You sort of say, like, given the day I've had, I'm not going to force myself to hang up my coat. Or you say, like, oh, now I'm letting my hair down. I've worked so hard during the week. Now's my time to just, like, kick back. And if I don't, I don't have to take this, I don't have to put this bag of potato chips back in the cabinet. I'm just going to leave it right here. And there's sort of a freedom that, a feeling of freedom that can come from that. But the problem is for most people is that there's kind of a cost to that, that in the end, it kind of makes you feel worse because then you you sort of face with all of this mess. So I think there's no magic to it. The reason to work on outer order is because it does make you feel happier, healthier, more productive, more creative. And if you're a person who's like, I know everybody says make your bed, but I don't make my bed and I look at it and I'm like, hey, I'm a grown up. Look at me. I don't have to make my bed. It's great. Like, then don't make your bed. There's no magic to it. It's only if it makes you feel better. And so I think like for you, it might have been that the rhythm of this might have been kind of fun. It might have been kind of a way to like celebrate the weekend and differentiate it from the week. And that's fine as long as it's not bringing you down. But I think what happens to a lot of people is they're especially is like in adult life, it's like it's kind of fun for the moment. But then in the end, it just makes you feel worse because you're like, oh, everything's a mess. I can't find anything. I have this important report and I'm running late and I can't find it because there's all this junk everywhere. And, oh, every time I walk into this room, I just see a thousand things I need to take care of. And so I'm not even going to go in this room because it just makes me feel so lousy. It's like if it's backing up on you, if it's making you feel out of control, if it's making you feel it's just visually distressing, then it's kind of like, well, maybe you want to not let that happen. You know, maybe you want to stay on top of it because if you let it get too messy, then you got to deal with it. And maybe it's easier just to do it as you go. But if a different thing works for people, like I would never say you have to live this way. It's just that most people seem to find it more pleasant and in the end kind of contributes to their productivity and creativity. 
Yeah, and it's all about balance. What I was describing in college was certainly not what I would say was adult life uh, and had lots (laughs) of, you know, swings in in wildly in both directions. But now in in my adult life, I'm a, uh, oh, roommate or partner is uh, out of town and I've got the place to myself or or whatever. Let me leave a couple dishes in the sink. That's a, a small, uh, what do you call it? A, a small pleasure, I guess, of adult life. No, and I think there's a place for that. You know, I don't think we have to be super rigid or feel like we have to keep every rule all the time. It's only if it if it makes us feel better. But yeah, I agree. There is something about kind of having periods where you kind of loosen up on certain kind of rules for yourself because you can. Sure. But as long as you're doing that mindfully too. I think a lot of times people feel sort of out of control. One thing I've really found is that some people really feel out of control of, of themselves. Like they feel like they can't keep their promises to themselves or they keep thinking that something's really important to them and then they keep not living up to it in their life and what, how they're behaving. That's a bad feeling. It's a bad feeling to feel mm-hmm. like you can't count on yourself and you can't keep a promise to yourself necessarily or that things are just kind of out of your control. That is a big drag on your happiness. So I think anything that you can do to help you feel like you're living up to your idea of how you want your life to be, the more you can follow through on that, the happier we'll be. Sure. And the idea of control is is really interesting because I found that I'm actually a nervous cleaner. So mm, if I'm nervous yes. about the future, I'll start going around. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a, I, to me, I think it's a control thing where, all right, I can't control what I'm stressed out about. I actually, I noticed it. I was maybe 14 or 15 years old and my parents were going through a divorce and I would just go upstairs and clean my room three times over. And I was like, uh, okay, yeah, I see why I'm doing this. And I still catch myself every so often. I'm like, all right, chill out for a little bit. But yeah, the control thing is, it's real. Yeah. And I think, and I will sometimes do it to calm myself down. It sounds like the way you did where I'll be like, I have a big week coming up. I have a lot of things that that's kind of are weighing on my mind. Why don't I take 20 minutes and like really clean up my office and get everything like just so, you know, really force myself to try to just clear the decks. And that does help me feel calmer and more prepared to face challenging situations. Let me ask you this as an upholder, which I think that I would be as well. Do you ever struggle with your flexibility in uh-huh. where you do you put your mind to something you said well this is the, these are the three things that I'm going to do it's the month of March yeah. and uh you just cannot like if somebody comes by your way you're like oh my god are we changing plans right now is this are we really doing this yeah it's funny that you say that because that's one of the things that's one of the criticisms people often have of upholders is they're inflexible they can be very rigid now it's interesting and this can also make them seem cold What makes somebody an upholder is that they readily meet outer and inner expectations. So they meet a work deadline and they keep a New Year's resolution without much fuss. They're very focused on execution. And as you say, this often shows up as this was the three things that I want to get done today. And I don't want to be spontaneous. I don't want to change plans. I've made my three things. I want to stick to my three things. Or like, I go running both days on the weekend and I don't care that we have guests in from out of town because I run on Saturday and Sunday and like, you know, I'm training for the marathon. I have to go on a 15 mile run. I don't care that we've got guests staying with us because I have to do it. So that can make them seem cold and inflexible. 
upholders also can have something called tightening. So tightening is when, for a lot of people, we start out and we're doing something like going for a run or, I mean, exercising. And over time, it kind of loosens up. But what often happens with upholders, and I don't know if you've experienced this, is tightening, which is the rules get tighter and tighter. So like a friend of mine, you know how a lot of people want to take 10,000 steps in a day. So he Mm -hmm. had his Apple watch and he's like, my wife was asleep in bed. I was jogging next to the toilet in the bathroom because I was like going to get up to my 10,000 steps by midnight. Now this, you could say, well, this is good because he's getting his 10,000 steps. Or you could say like, oh, that's tightening. He's getting too focused on it. And so it's just good for upholders to be aware of tightening because if they find themselves getting drawn further and further and further into like not being able to release from an expectation, even when kind of on balance, it seems like this is a time to let it go or to adapt. It's just good to realize this is something that upholders face. Just for me, just realizing that tight or, and there's also things that upholders maybe don't do because there's a lot of tightening risk. So for instance, a friend of mine who's an upholder, his girlfriend used an app that was a budgeting app where you would you budget every single dime you spend. And my friend said, well, she really wants me to do it, but I know that I would get so focused on 100% accurate tracking that it would just take up way too much of my time and mental energy. I don't even want to look at the app because I know it would just become overwhelming to me. A lot of people might not have that problem, but he knew like, oh, I'm in a polder. That's the kind of thing that could like tighten on me. Sure, sure. I think you mentioned your food diaries and that's the same kind of thing that can get people into into OCD territory. And I'm, I'm not a psychologist, uh, but that would most likely sounds like the direction that things would go. I was working with a neurofeedback pr- practitioner, a, a PhD in neuroscience for a little while that I that I mentioned before. And one of the things that he had me do each day as I was working on my own mindfulness was rate my f- level of flexibility for that mm. day. Because I can remember as a child, if my plans would get screwed up, right. I would just get so angry and it was weird. I didn't know why. I didn't really understand it. I was, you know, I was a child, but I can remember certainly if uh, my mom said, oh, we got to run out and I was doing something, I'd be just furious. And that's for whatever reason, that was how my brain was wired. Right. But see, to me, that's not a right or wrong thing. It's just, it's just different people have different approaches and you didn't have autonomy. So somebody was saying, you have to change your plans because I've decided to change my plans. I mean, it's interesting because one of, so there's upholders, questers, obligers, and rebels, and rebel is sort of the opposite of upholders. So rebels, they resist outer and inner expectations like, so they want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. They can do anything they want to do, but if you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. One of the things that's a tip off that someone is a rebel is if they put a high a value on flexibility and spontaneity. Rebels will often mention how important it is to be spontaneous. And people talk to me sometimes, like spontaneity is an important value. I'm like, spontaneity is an important value for some people. I put Mm -hmm. no value on spontaneity. I don't want any spontaneity in my life. I don't value it. I don't like it. I like predictability. Now, a rebel could say to me, I hate a predictable life. It makes me feel choked and chained. Who wants to live like that? I'm like, I want to live like that. I would love to have the life of a Benedictine monk. It frustrates me that I can't. And it sounds like you might be the same. A rebel wants spontaneity. It's not that one way is right and one way is wrong. It's not like all of us upholders need to learn how to be spontaneous. 
And they, it's not that they all have to learn how to be predictable. It's like, well, how do we create an environment that works for us? Now, when this becomes a problem is if an upholder child has a rebel mother or an upholder boss has a rebel employee. And then they're at cross purposes because one wants to value spontaneity and one wants to value planning and predictability. And so I, I don't like it when people, I mean, or it, it bothers me when people are like, you need to change. I'm like, this is what I like. You can like what you like. How do we create a situation where we both can thrive rather than trying to instruct each other that what we want is not right? Again, like obliger, obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. So they're the kind of people who would never let down a work deadline, but they struggle to keep their promises to themselves. They need accountability. They need outer accountability for outer and inner expectations. If they want to read more, join a book group because that's what's going to get. If you want to exercise more, take an exercise class with a teacher who's going to notice if you don't show up or work out with a friend who's going to be annoyed if you bail. They need accountability. Rebels don't like accountability. They don't like the feeling that somebody's looking over their shoulder. They tend to want to do what they want to do in their own way. They don't want to have to be answerable to somebody. Again, so there's no magic to it. It's not like you need to have accountability. A lot of rebels have been sort of brainwashed by people to think that they should have accountability. And then they're confused when accountability backfires on them. It's like, yeah, accountability works for the people for whom it works. Maybe accountability doesn't work for you. So then try something else. But it's not like there's something wrong with you because you can't sign up for a class that meets every week at the same time. That's just a rebel thing. Rebels don't like that. So fine. You can yeah. find another way to exercise. You don't have to do it the way that works for other people. <laughs> I'm just thinking of my poor ex-gym partners who I would get so pissed off at if they didn't show up and and just belittle them because of their lack of commitment. And I just couldn't deal with it. It was just mm. like, uh, you know, and, and I've, of course, since then only trained by myself because, well, I'm just not interested in dragging someone else along. And, and it's about navigating the world, uh, hopefully in a way that makes of course, ourselves happier, but makes us easier to be to be around. Absolutely, and communicate and coexist with other people on this planet. Which is, uh, yeah, we. I guess if we we look at our own happiness, well, this is you brought this up before. Taking too deep of a dive on your own happiness may or may not affect the happiness of of others. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Happy people make people happy. So yeah, if you work on your own happiness, you're likely to contribute to the happiness of other people. Sure. Well, Gretchen, you've been a, a pleasure to talk to. It's been really a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, I, re I really appreciate your your time. I wanted to just ask you, uh, I know that again, your book is coming out, Outer Order, Inner Calm, Declutter and Organize to Make Room for Happiness. Of course, I can recommend people go out and get that. But Gretchen, if people want to become part of your community, reach out to you on social media, uh, listen to your podcast, where can they find you online? Yeah, I love to engage with readers and listeners and viewers. So I encourage people to get in touch. Uh, my website is GretchenRubin.com and there's tons of information there. I write a lot about my adventures and happiness and good habits and the four tendencies and clutter. Um, and I also have a lot of free resources on all different subjects for people who want them. And then you can also find information about my books if you want to know more about a book or read a sample chapter, or listen to an audio clip if you're thinking about it. You mentioned my podcast. I have a podcast called Happier with Gretchen Rubin that I co-host with my sister, 
who's very messy, by the way. Um, so we've had many, <laughs> many fun times of me clearing her clutter. So that, and we talk about, you know, spoiler alert, how to be happier. And I am on social media just about everywhere under the name Gretchen Rubin. So you can just at Gretchen Rubin on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Excellent. Yeah. So um, I, I love to hear people's questions and observations and insights. Well, I think they'll be able to find you easily. And uh, Gretchen, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you.